Well, once again, we're continuing on in the Gospel of John and we find ourselves here in chapter 2 and we're looking at verses 12 to 17 and we read this. After this, he went down to, to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples where they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove out all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, remember, the primary purpose of John's entire gospel stated in chapter 20 and verse 31, and I'll remind you of it each time, because it's the reason for everything that John writes. And you'll be able to quote this, uh, ultimately from memory, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he has both an apologetic purpose a bold purpose, born of the evidences, uh, witnessed firsthand, proving that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. And then he has an evangelistic purpose, so that you'll believe, and in believing, that you'll have eternal life. And everything, John's Gospel then, is driven in the direction of proving the deity of Jesus Christ, proving that he is divine, that he's the Word made flesh, that he's God, who was with God and by whom everything that exists was created. And so consequently, all the way through by the action of Jesus, by the miracles of Jesus and by the words of Jesus, by the works of Jesus, we find the evidence of his deity. And so, a few days after the wedding, we come to the miracle that we've just read. And on the surface, perhaps it doesn't initially appear as a miracle, because there's there's no overt display of supernatural power taking place as we've become accustomed to recognising when we read of resurrections, healings or the casting out of demons or the creation of wine as we've just seen in, in the first miracle in the prior passage. But this is nonetheless a miracle as we'll discover and in fact it's a miracle of huge proportions and I'll try and help you understand that as we go through it. It's a, it's a miracle driven, not by compassion, but driven by anger. The first miracle that John records, the beginning of the miracles that Jesus did, was a private miracle. It happened among friends and family. It happened in the little town of Cana, just nine miles outside of Nazareth, with the people that they knew and grew up with. Mary was there and, and the family of Jesus with his extended family, and this was, this was the, the first miracle, and, and it was a sort of um, a jumping-off point as he leaves behind 30 years of, of relative obscurity. Whereas this, the second miracle, isn't a private miracle. It's not a friends and family miracle. This is a miracle in which tens of thousands of people participate. They're not watching. They're not innocent bystanders. They're in the thick of the drama, witnessing the power and the divine energy of God. And 
it's, it's a miracle, as I said, not driven by compassion, which is why Jesus created wine and why he casts out demons and heals sick people and why he raises the dead. Those are miracles out of his kindness and his compassion. But at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, he did two miracles, which are essentially the same thing. He threw the entire mass of humanity at Passover out of the temple. He did it at the beginning and he, and he does it at the end. And those were, as I say, not miracles of compassion. Those are miracles of holy anger. And they were previews of future judgment. A judgment that would come in the destruction of Jerusalem temporarily and a judgment that will become a reality forever before God at the great white throne judgment. And what causes Jesus to do what he does here is an age-old problem and one that, that uh, we have to address as well. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 1, all the way back to before the Babylonian captivity, way back into the era of Isaiah, you read this, coming from the mouth of the Lord. Isaiah 1, 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. And Josephus says there would have been as many as a quarter of a million animal sacrifices offered at the Passover. Isaiah asks hundreds of years before, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat, fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you are offering many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right and to seek justice. They shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that message could have been given by Jesus on the day that he cleaned out the temple because it's the exact same problem. It's an age-old problem of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in Israel, false religion and superficial worship. And it, it infuriates Jesus because it's, it's, it's irreverent and blasphemous. And in Amos, the Lord says, stop your songs. I don't want to hear your songs. It's a, it's a very appropriate passage for us when we come to the Lord's table because the Lord feels today in exactly how he did in Isaiah's day and in our Lord's day about false worship, about superficial worship and about hypocrisy. And so let's look at this story and how it applies to us. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers. And John tells us later in chapter 7 they were not believers in him. So the family go along with his disciples. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, James and John so far are following Jesus. 
and they all head down to Capernaum, that little village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that, that little village, by the way, was a place where Jesus did so many miracles that their unbelief is described as worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus said in Matthew 11, if it had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, what was done in Capernaum, they would have repented. And so Jesus spent a few days here at this time, and later in his ministry, uh, many, many months there performing miracles. But on this occasion, they stay only a few days because they're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. They go towards Capernaum, and then verse 13, they arrive at the Passover because it's, because it's close. And Jesus comes else to Jerusalem. And the Passover of the Jews, um, that's an annual feast, closely followed by a, another feast lasting seven days of unleavened bread, uh, are all mandated by God. And you'll recall when, when, when Israel was delivered from Egypt, uh, Exodus chapter 12, they were told the last plague is going to be the death of the firstborn. The angel of death is going to come and kill all the firstborn. And if you want the angel of death to pass over your house, then sacrifice a lamb without spot or blemish and sprinkle its blood on the doorpost and on the cross piece. Eat a meal together, have unleavened bread and bitter herbs because you must be ready to go really quickly. And the angel of death will pass over you and deliver you from judgment if the lamb's blood is on the door. And this, of course, is symbolic of the work that Jesus the Messiah does when he puts his own blood on the cross and provides deliverance from divine judgment. And so the Passover is instituted in Exodus 12. And in Exodus 23, God decrees that they keep the Passover every year, along with other feasts and ordinances as well. And Jesus, always obedient to the word of God, always obedient through everything in the Old Testament, fulfilling all righteousness, Scripture says, he obeyed everything that was moral, everything that was statuted in the law of God, everything that was ceremonial in the law of God, and everything that was practical, whatever was written by God and prescribed for the people of Israel, Jesus conformed to it. And so, as he always did, he comes to the Passover. And again, we find it interesting that his ministry begins at the Passover and it ends at the Passover. And both of these bookends, so to speak, both of these Passovers, the first and the last, he brings the same action against the temple. At the first Passover, he cleanses the temple, which, which begins his ministry. And at the last, he cleanses the temple to publicly end his, his ministry. And of course, he himself then becomes the Passover lamb. And during the course of his ministry, there will be two further Passovers. John describes one in chapter 6 and the other in chapter 11. He always, remember, he always kept the Passover. And so on this occasion, he enters the temple to begin his ministry... And by the way, don't forget, he'd been there every year of his life. But this time, he's engaged in his ministry. And so he comes with a different mindset. And again, we catch a glimpse of him coming there, don't we, in, when he was 12 years old. At that point, he's only asking questions, trying to get answers out of the temple leaders. But this time, he's fully engaged in his messianic ministry. And he's here to do God's will. And so the temple, his father's house, has become a, a place of business. And as we're about to find out, he's going to do his father's business. And he enters and immediately discovers, verse 14, 
in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. And you have to understand a little bit, a little bit about this. And now, I don't know if I can paint the whole picture in a short time, but the number regarding the population of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus is, is hard to calculate, but if you look hard enough and, and, and sort of uh, pull everything together, we can calculate that the city of Jerusalem would have had a population of around 100 to 300,000 people under normal circumstances. We don't know exactly, um, but certainly several hundred thousand seems to be a safe bet. However, at the Passover, that number swells to around a million. Josephus goes as far as to say 2.7 million, but that's because he multiplies the number of sacrifices by 10. Now, I'm not sure how valid that would be, but, but let's say for the sake of being conservative, there are a million people. I, I think that's pretty safe. A million people that have literally descended upon the city of Jerusalem for the Passover and the subsequent feast. That means that every room in every inn, every room that was spared had been turned into a room for occupancy. Every extra room in every single home was filled and people were packed into rooms in multiples to fit this mass of people in. The population fourfold what it would normally be, let's say. And, and a focal point, the main activity for all of these people is the temple, she pouring in. How many animals did they slaughter? Was Josephus right in saying 250,000? Well, the slaughter of animals officially took place between 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 6 o'clock in the evening. But if there were that many animals, they'd probably have had to start well before then. And people would have been coming and going for the purpose of bringing their sacrifice to be offered. But there was more than that going on. Apparently, by this time, and, and there are some historical indications of this, the people used to buy and sell outside the temple had moved inside the temple courtyard. This may well have been because the high priest has now taken over the process for his own enrichment. In fact, they were called the bazaars of Annas. And you can, you can look it up yourselves and find out for yourselves. So upon arrival, he not only had this crush of humanity of, of people coming and going, but there are also some people seemingly coming to talk to God, to praise God and to worship God and, and, and to view the temple as a visiting pilgrim. So we find it even harder to estimate how many people were, were there. It would be well into the tens or twenties of thousands of people at any given moment in time. So you can try and picture that, perhaps like Wembley Stadium with a, with a full capacity. And somehow in the middle of this, people are selling oxen, sheep and doves. And again, then there were the money changers seated at their tables. And the reason they were selling sacrifices is because people coming from long distances would have found it inconvenient and cumbersome to take animals with them. So they'd purchase them. They'd purchase an animal when they arrived. And historical evidence would have told them that if, they'd, if they brought an animal with them, it would probably have been rejected anyway by the overseers that, that checked the suitability of the animal. And if the animal was refused, they'd be forced to buy one of the temple animals uh, anyway. That, that, that's sort of how they did their business, really unethically. And they rejected the ones that were brought so that they could make money by charging exorbitant prices on the ones they sold. 
Oh, not to mention, everybody had to pay for the animal and the temple taxes in the local currency that was accepted in Israel. And people from other countries having different currencies would have to have their money converted. And records show that the exchange rate could have been anything between 10 and 12%. So the whole event had been turned into a sordid, money-making enterprise. And, and, and some theologians even use the word extortion, but without evidence of threats, that might be going a little bit too far. But I'm trying to give you a picture of, of, of God's holy ordinance in response to the incredible deliverance of the Israelite nation from the hands of Pharaoh. What did it become in all reality? Matthew 21, when Jesus does this again at the end of his ministry, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So into this crushing place with tens of thousands of people and animals, you could bench buyers and sellers under the control of around 300 temple police. Uh, if you add all the people responsible uh, for keeping the peace and, and, and crowd control, making sure that they took care of any incidences and disruptions. So we have all this commotion and all this noise and the rope was next door. It had been erected with a, with a high elevation so that they could sit on top and they could observe, they could look down and if needed, the Roman garrison could be dispatched to put down any threatening situation. And so, in spite of the volumes, it was a well-secured place. And after all, it was a temple, and people were supposed to be worshipping there. So they were supposed to be maintaining appropriate attitudes. And Jesus witnesses all this. His eyes scanning the whole theatre of events, selling sacrificial animals, money-changing... And there's only one conclusion. He sees his father's house totally polluted. Their hearts are the same as the hearts of the people to whom Isaiah wrote, to whom Amos wrote. And Psalm 51, 15 to 17 comes to mind. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And here, such irreverence, what should have been a place of repentance, a place of reverence, a place of humility and a place of worship, a place of praise is now a chaotic marketplace, abusive commerce and corruption, taking every inch. Nothing, and I say that advisedly, nothing enraged Jesus with a holy anger and fury like irreverence, and he displayed his, in, his greatest displeasure and demonstrated his most severe action at these two incidences during his life. The rest of the time, compassion and mercy. Here, divine fury. It was divine fury. These are the most severe things Jesus did in his entire life, and they were done in answer to hypocritical worship. The Jews expected the Messiah to come and attack the Gentiles. And instead, the Messiah came and he attacked them. And he attacked them at their self-elevated best. He attacked them in the middle of their worship, at their high point, the Passover in the temple. They expected a conquering warrior, absolutely. But one who displaced the nations, who'd abused them, mistreated them and, and were indeed currently occupying them. But instead, he sends an unmistakable message that judgment is coming on them. 
and not their enemies. In fact, at the end of his ministry, after doing the same thing again, he sat and he looked at the temple and told his disciples that this entire thing is coming down and not one stone is going to be left on another. 40 years later, 70 AD, it happened just as he prophesied. And to this day, it is no, no more. Well, Jesus saw all of this and in holy fury he acts. Verse 15. He made a whip out of cords. Now the KJV uses the word scourge. So I want you to imagine a multi-headed whip. And cords would be lying all around the place because there were animals everywhere. Animals were always tied with ropes and secured. Crates were, were tied. And remember, this is an unknown man. This is the beginning of his ministry. It's, it's just the beginning. They have no knowledge, no history of Jesus that they should expect anything at all. He's a total unknown. He's just a man. He's just a man at the Passover. Perhaps recognisable as a Galilean by the way he dressed. But other than that, he's just a man in the crowd. And he ties some ropes together and makes a little whip. Except this is no ordinary man. Because he unleashes miracle power. And there's no human explanation for what happens. The miracle is in these words. And drove all from the temple courts. And again, I want to remind you of, of how understated the miracles of Scripture are. There's no lightning, there's no thunder, there's no angelic fanfare, there's no trumpet blast. He just drove them all out. And again, consider the numbers. This isn't a market in the centre of St. Helens. This is an unimaginable act of power. How did he do it? Well, it's sort of like the reverse of what happened in Galilee when, the, when they tried to kill him and he disappeared. Remember that? He was in the middle of the crowd and they wanted to stone him and he left. Only this time, he's in the middle and they leave. All the animals leave, all the people with their doves grab their crates and leave. He flips over the money ta changing tables and they scramble to get whatever they can and they evacuate the place in such orderly fashion that we don't even have any word that the Romans turned the garrison loose on the crowd. We have no word from Scripture to indicate that anybody was injured or hurt. I'm sure some people bumped into one another and tripped over tables and bumped into animals and suffered a few minor bruises and all that kind of thing. But this was, this was not an act of vengeance or of cruelty on people. It's an act of judgment on a system of religion. Jesus did no harm to people. He attacked the system. The merchants would want to have stopped him. The temple police would, would felt duty-bound to, to stop him, and the crowd would want to stop him, and all it would have taken was one big, muscular, burly man to wrap his arms around him and say, whoa, what are you trying to do there, fella? And a few people would have grabbed him and taken the cords that he'd made into his, into his tiny whip. They'd tie up his hands and say, remove him, get him out of here. But none of that happened. That doesn't happen. Because this is miraculous power. This is crowd control, the likes of which has no human explanation. He goes from the very private family miracle at a wedding in Cana to this massive public miracle in which tens of thousands of people participate. And no one can do anything about it. 
to an unparalleled display of divine force, which had created an evacuation as, as the merchants frantically chased their beasts, as the money changes, scramble to grab what they can, and everybody's completely obedient, totally compliant. And it's this that gives us a preview of the power that Jesus has to judge. The inescapable power of his judgment. You've polluted, he says, my father's house. You've corrupted my father's house. And this is the loyal son of God. And he's first and foremost loyal to his father. Loyal to his father. And he'll do this on a massive scale at his second coming. On a massive scale he'll do this. Only there, at his second coming, there will be death. There will be death. And Revelation 19, 15 declares, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And there will be slaughter, the likes the world has, has never seen. He says, get these out of, out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. My father is being dishonoured by what you're doing. My father. What a statement. The Jews could never say that about God. That would have been presumptuous. John 5, 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. That's my authority for doing this, he says. I'm one with God, and you are blaspheming God. You're desecrating my father's house. Did this, things like this ever happen in the temple? Well, they, yes, they did. There's a book called The Jews at the Time of Jesus, an introduction. It's written by a man named Stephen Wyland, and he writes in there, and this is a, a quote, such incidents were not unusual in the temple. And he gives a very interesting one. The high priest was in the temple at the event and the Jews were very unhappy with him. To such an extent, they started throwing lemons at him. Pasting the high priest with lemons. And why lemons? I've got, I've got no idea. Perhaps he had an abundance of them. We, we tend to think of um, you know, eggs or rotten tomatoes as missiles to throw these days if we're protesting something. But here... He unleashes his private mercenaries, his army, uh, and according to the record, slaughtered the people in the courtyard in the multiple thousands for throwing lemons at him. Now that's completely the opposite end of the scale of what the Lord does. He doesn't kill anybody, but he does more than throw lemons at the high priest because he doesn't like them. He pronounces judgment on the entire religious system, priests and people. And then verse 17, he said, his disciples remembered that it is written. Now, you've got to remember, these six men were solid, true Old Testament believers. They were followers of John the Baptist. And if you recall, it was John who said, follow Christ. And they followed. And they'd been with him now for a while, for a week at least since... Um, when they first started following him and, and, and the wedding at Cana. And now, um, on a few days more, um, they know their Old Testament. And when they see Jesus do this, uh, they remember the verse, and it's from Psalm 69. But they know that passage. And it's another picture of Christ. 
written by the psalmist David. And at that time, David was calling the people back to true worship. That's the setting. David was calling the people to true worship, and what he was getting in return was resistance and hatred and hostility. And people were in the same condition then that they are in in Jesus' time. And David is doing his best to call them back to faithfulness. He says, they're mistreating me. They're hating me. And then he says this in verse 9, Psalm 69. For zeal for your house consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall upon me. I must do what I do because I feel the pain when you're dishonoured. And that's what it means. My passion for your house consumes me. My love for you is beyond measure. The reproaches, the insults that fall on you, fall on me. When somebody criticises you, when somebody dishonours you, I feel the pain. And by the way, that's when you know that you're spiritually mature. When God is dishonoured and you feel the pain. When God is dishonoured, you feel the pain. And they remembered David. Wow. When he saw God dishonoured, he felt the pain. And they see Jesus doing the same thing. And that psalm is messianic in that sense. Here is Jesus acting like David. The same devotion to the glory of God and the honour of his house and reverence. And Jesus felt the pain way more than David. David couldn't seem to do anything about it. Not like this. And here, Jesus is consumed with this same truth. God is to be glorified. God is, is to be glorified. Jesus just declares the whole thing irreverent and blasphemous. So what does that have to do with us? There's no temple anymore. Well, at least there's no building that's the temple. But there is a temple. We are the temple, aren't we? Turn to 1 Peter 4 and we'll close here. 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So who, who is that? What is that referring to? Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household. Joins with the house of God. We are the temple of the living God. He indwells his church. And it's time for judgment to begin here. And this is where we come to grips with that, right here at this table. And I'll show you that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. This is where Paul institutes the Lord's table, repeating what our Lord did the night of the Passover. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:27, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. 
that's a frightening thing if you've come to this table in an unworthy manner. That is commemorating the death of Christ who paid for your sin whilst you're still holding on to it. If you come hypocritically, you're guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself and in so doing, eat the bread and drink the cup. Do some do some heart examination for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 31. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. 1 John 1 verses 8 to 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness if we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his words not in us if we confess our sins before God so then judgment begins in the church in the household of God and it's it's here where it starts if we measure ourselves if we measure ourselves, we won't be judged. And that's what it's saying. The Lord's table then becomes the point of our initial self-judgment. When we are judged, Paul says, we are disciplined by the Lord. Not condemned, we're saved. Listen, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But judgment begins here, so that we don't become disciplined by the Lord. If we examine ourselves and come in a worthy manner, then there's no further judgment. Having sought his forgiveness, that judgment stands as the final judgment. However, if we don't judge ourselves, measure ourselves rightly and discern our condition, and do not come in a pure way, then we're exposed to the judgment of God in forms of discipline. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. We come to be judged if we do not judge ourselves. So when you come to this table, you're saying to the Lord, I'm exposed at this point to your, to your judgment. If I don't examine myself, my own heart, and honestly judge and confess my own sin. What would happen if the Lord appeared today? Would he do something as he did back then? I don't think it's unreasonable to say that there might be many... Our familiarity with these things keeps us from a, from a genuine examination of our hearts. Show us anything wrong in our lives. Help us to confess and to yield to everything that is displeasing to you. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us. Wash us that we may be honest in that self-examination. Honest as we repent so that we might not be in a position to be disciplined. We want your, your favour and we want the joy of obedience and you put this table in the life of the church as a point at which that judgment takes place that self-judgment that honesty of heart that protects us from from your divine discipline open our hearts show us what we need to give to you to let go of and to confess that we might honor you even as we partake in this meal for we ask it in your wonderful and holy name amen Amen.